we started the last time. Shit. So you're going to say hi, I'm Jilly. I'm going to say hi, right. I'm Kendra. Then you're going to. Well, we're also going to talk about how we first sort of how we found her and then talk about why she's badass. I'll do the really brief synopsis. Um, this is going to be a great fucking episode. We're going to be phenomenal today. Kendra, who's in the middle of a fucking existential life crisis, and <laughs> Jilly, who's like, I will not get a migraine. Yeah, this is going to be a good episode. Buckle up, buttercups. Let's do this. This is Baddest Women of History with Jillian and Kendra. For so long, women were silent. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Hear me now. Welcome to Badass Women of History. I'm Jillian. I'm Kendra. And today we're going to be talking about Margaret Beaufort, the mother of the Tudors. Um, so, Kendra, um, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you found Margaret Beaufort? Well, I found Margaret Beaufort in, I think, one of the very first books I read when I was very young um, was a book all about the Tudors and sort of how they came about. I started with Henry VIII because I wanted to know more about all these murdered people and divorced people and why that was so important okay. and um it's a it's a long chapter but there was a like it covered everyone in the family like it's the whole mm-hmm. story of the family from the beginning and i remember reading about margaret and going wow this woman's pretty cool she's like cooler than henry and she doesn't have as much real estate in the book as he does or as much as like Elizabeth and I think for me I was like well why not she's kind of amazing so that was I think my first um introduction to Margaret how about you strangely I only discovered Margaret about six years ago um I was uh living in Prague and had a cold or something like that and I was watching uh documentaries on YouTube and I um bumbled across uh Philippa Gregory's documentary, um, The Real White Queen and Her Rivals, and being, you know, coming from the family that I come from and like our interest in medieval and and British Renaissance history, I was like, okay, this looks really cool. And strangely, instead of being drawn to, you know, Elizabeth Woodville or Anne Neville, the more that Philippa Gregory talked about Margaret Beaufort, the more I was like, I have to know everything about this woman and this woman has literally become my idol for like everything that I do in my life. Um, maybe not everything, but I just was completely blown away by her story. And then I saw Dan Jones's um, documentary, his four part series on the Wars of the Roses. And obviously my favorite episode was the last one, which is called a mother's love where he talks about, Margaret Beaufort's role in the ending of the Wars of the Roses and 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 how um just how politically savvy she was and what an amazing sort of planning pragmatist she is or was and then it just sort of took off from there and I've just been pretty much obsessed with her ever since to the point that you know I mean friends who I just meet sort of are like oh yeah like I was telling them about this podcast and they're like 
your favorite? And I'm like, yeah, she, she kind of is my favorite, at least within sort of British history. She is definitely my favorite. She's incredible. And I'm very mad at William Shakespeare for not including her in the story of Richard III. Like, I think that that's a huge admission and he and I are going to have to have a conversation about that at some point. Yeah. Like you put Margaret of Anjou in there and she's been dead for a couple of years <laughs> by this point in time, but you didn't put the live lady in. Okay. Oh, you know, artistic license being what it is. Yeah, I always wondered why he kept her out because she feels pretty fascinating. And instead he puts in, yeah, another very fascinating woman, but one who... Who I'm sure we will absolutely cover at some point in time during this podcast. Yeah. But again, like she was much too early for that story. And also as badass as she was, like it's... The parts that she was playing didn't make sense for her to play. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Unless it's like a creepy revenant story and she's like running around like a like a zombie throughout the whole thing, reading her lines. Yeah. Or, you know, if she's sort of acting as like the 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 conscience in the back of Richard's head, like yelling at him. Um, and we will get to why Margaret Beaufort is so sort of important in the Richard the Third story in I swear to God, like probably four minutes. Um, and I'm literally not kidding. It will be about four minutes. Um, it's really weird that old uncle Billiam did not include the person who was like really, really behind the scenes, pulling the strings, getting everything to happen, getting Henry Tudor to where he needs to be to, to, to get to the battle of Bosworth in order to put a dead French woman. Not that I have anything against dead French women or live French women for that matter. But like, um, it just, it just seems a weird omission. Um, yeah. It really does. It, it's just, you know, especially considering that she is literally the the mother of the Tudor dynasty and he was writing for Elizabeth, who was Margaret's great granddaughter. Yeah, it's just who herself was. I mean, Elizabeth was also a total badass. Um, so it's just it's just really weird that that she wasn't in there. So uh, Margaret was born in the 1430s. Nope, she was born in the 14... 1400s, 1404, I think. No, she had to. She couldn't have been in fourteen oh four because no, no, not her, not her. No, no, no. She's not fourteen oh four. Sorry. Yeah. Do, 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 because do, I was do, just do, all that do, would do, have do. made her. That would have made her eighty one. I was thinking in, of her. I was thinking of her parents. I'm terrible. I think it was fourteen forty three. That makes far more <laughs> sense. Um. So she's the only child of her dad, who was the heir to the. He himself was the heir to the the Beaufort fortune um she comes from a bastard line of john the gaunt of john the gaunt of john gaunt um <laughs> john the gaunt yes oh, a bastard line of john the gaunt it's just he they strung him out like some sort of wall <laughs> <laughs> and then they used whatever dna was there and just made a baby uh, of john gaunt who was henry the fourth's dad um she comes from the th- his third wife catherine swindon who is also a badass like just tons of badass women running around England at this point in time. And unfortunately, since most of their children were illegitimate and became legitimized later with the provision that none of the the people descended from that line could ascend to the throne, this fact is going to come in very, very handy later when we start talking about Henry, Margaret's son. Yes. Very. Very, very, very handy. Um, So (laughs) interesting caveat to history. She's the only child of her dad, John, um, who dies when she's just about a year old, maybe 18 months old, um, probably by his own hand. Um, There is still some speculation, but they're pretty sure that he committed suicide, which, again, is really sort of interesting when you look at 
the male Lancastrians from that line, because you've got like, you know, Henry the Sixth, who was probably schizophrenic, who Margaret was very close to in her life. You've got Henry the Fourth, uh, Henry Bolingbroke, who also later in his life um, displayed some some mental illness. Henry the Seventh, her son, also displayed paranoid tendencies later in his life. So there's an interesting sort of hypothesis that there was some mental illness running around within this line of the Plantagenet dynasty, which then also plays into Henry VIII and his whole... Um, yeah, banana pants. So bananas, just absolutely crazy bananas. So at a year old, she becomes pretty much the most eligible woman in England. Like she's cousins to the king, um, Henry VI. She's next to the the Earl of Warwick's daughters, Anne and Elizabeth. She's pretty much the richest woman in the country. So everybody's trying to to marry her off. And so she gets married at about five, which I know that sounds super shocking. Not really shocking back in those days. It was a weird and complicated time in <laughs> the Middle Ages. <laughs> If you were no, yeah. Um, but I think wasn't that after her dad was? Um, oh, he was dead. He was. He he, yeah, he, he was died. Dead. He yeah. died. He died when she was one. And so, like, it was her mom sort of trying to jockey for like pretty decent power at this point in time and doing what she could to supposedly like sort of secure her daughter's future with like a pretty okay family. Um, and then Henry pops. Henry the sixth pops up and says, "No, I I want her to marry my you know half brother who is." the son of, you know, my mom, Catherine of Valois, who had been married to Henry V, but like whose dad was a Welsh horse person. Good old Welsh um, horse people. Uh, yeah. Jilly, what kind of a horse person was he? What was he like? <laughs> he, oh, her her groomsman, her, her like the guy that basically took care of her horses is what I was trying to go for. Um, <laughs> it's been a weird week. He was actually part horse. <laughs> Yeah, he was, he, he was a senator. <laughs> it was a very odd combination. She, yeah, <laughs> Catherine of Valois was a really, really, you know, dedicated equestrian, really rode that horse hard. <laughs> oh, no. None of this is true, except for the fact that he was the master of her horse. Yeah, that, that part's true, but... <laughs> And that he was Welsh and that they literally did not have a language in common and probably couldn't speak to each other for the first, I don't know, five, six years of their marriage. Anyway, so Henry VI decides that he wants to marry um, uh, an 11-year-old, 12-year-old Margaret off to his half-brother to get that Beaufort fortune into the, the Tudor side of his family. So he petitions the Pope, gets first marriage annulled. Um and marries Margaret off to his younger half-brother, who, I need to stress this, is at this point in time about 25, and Margaret is about 13. Also totally normal back in those day and ages. Um, unfortunately, what happens next... But also horrifying. So horrifying, especially when we talk about what happens next in the story. So even that in day and age, when the age gap was that large, and the bride was you know, still basically a girl. She was 12 years old when she she married Edmund. Um, he decided he wanted a son. And so he took her to bed and got her pregnant and then promptly went and got captured in a war and died of the plague. Like you do. Exactly. That's exactly how you do. And you leave a 13-year-old widow who is seven months pregnant. Also, we need to, and this is incredibly important as well, is small for her age. It's not even that she's just young. Even the people of the time 
commented on how tiny of a human being Margaret Beaufort was. So she gives birth to to her only child, Henry, who she names after, strangely names after the king and not his father, which brilliant political move. Fuck you to her late husband. Who knows? A little column A, a little column B. I mean, can you suck up and say fuck you? <laughs> Do it. Yeah, Margaret could. Um, and nobody thought that she and the child were going to live. But lo and behold, they did. And then the Wars of the Roses promptly started and went on for the next 30 years of her life. And so pretty much after the um, you know year of mourning that she was supposed to do, understanding the political climate of the time, she brokered her next marriage. To a modern audience, that probably doesn't sound that amazing. Like, yeah, of course she took like her destiny into her hands and, 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 um, you know, decided who she was going to marry. At that point in time, it was almost unheard of that a woman would have any semblance of say of who she was going to marry and what she was looking for, let alone a 13 slash 14 year old child. I mean, I don't know how many of you remember being 14, 13 years old, but the idea of negotiating your own marriage, my own marriage, let alone like your own marriage, I'm not going to negotiate your marriage. Sorry, that would be rude. But (laughs) negotiating my own marriage when I was 13 or 14, I cannot imagine that. I mean, I know she was raised in a political family. She probably was indoctrinated pretty early into all of that. But still, that's a 14-year-old girl going, oh, no, 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 no. If I'm getting married again, I'm doing it on my own terms. And I can. Yeah. I mean, and thankfully, also, her her legal guardian was her late husband's brother, Jasper, who was a reoccurring presence and theme in Margaret's life, to the point that some people feel that he was the great love of her life, which I don't actually, I don't buy into that. I think that Um, There was a lot of incredible mutual respect on both of their parts. I think that they were terribly fond of each other, but I don't think that there was any sort of romantic attachment between the two of them. I think that he looked at her much more as sort of a little sister that he needed to protect. And she regarded him as somebody who understood and embraced her own agency and her intelligence and and her pragmatism to the point that he understood that she probably knew how to play the game better than he did. And her second marriage was to a man who was 15 to 20 years older than her, depending on who you're listening to, and the second son of a really important family. His name was Henry Stafford. And it was wildly successful. And they were married for like 20 years and absolutely um, got along really well, respected each other. Um, I don't think that they loved each other at first, but I definitely think that they grew to love each other. Whether or not it was a romantic love or a platonic love, um, I don't think it really matters. But um, every sort of record that we have of their relationship talks about it as one of complete and total mutual respect. Like he respected the hell out of her. She respected the hell out of him. He definitely, cause like by this point in time, the Wars of the Roses in, is in full swing. Nobody knows who is king at any given day, whether it's Henry the sixth or Edward the fourth. And like the crown keeps going back and forth. And her son is, been stripped of his lands and his titles, which in medieval England is like this. It literally means that he has nothing, which is unacceptable to Margaret. And so her entire goal for pretty much throughout her entire life, well, not her entire life, but at least until 1485 was to make sure that her son got his lands back so he could have some sort of legal standing within the world that he lived in. 
and was the Earl of Richmond and 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 had political sway and power and agency over his own life. And Stafford let her do that. Like he didn't ever try to rein her in or um tell her no um and actively helped her in her quest to do this, like to the point that they were both Lancastrians and he took a role and promised to fight for the opposition, the Yorkists in order to further her cause in a way that would be beneficial to her family, which is kind of amazing. Like that she managed to find a man who was so much older than her, was willing to marry her, who believed in her intelligence and pragmatism and goals and 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 vision for all of this. And sort of saw her as a partner too, right? Like not just, oh, hey, you know what? You're my new wife. You're going to give me lots of children. Yeah. And that's your job. Your job is to just be my wife. Like he let her do things politically that a lot of wives weren't able to do. And even, you know, in his last moments, um, because he died in battle, well, he got wounded in battle that led to his death. But um, he wrote to her right before the battle and basically said, you know, all of my lands and everything are yours and basically bury me where I fall, which again, sort of lends itself to how strongly and how intensely he felt about her as a person, like how much he respected her, because basically you would write to, you know, your steward or your head of household and stuff like that. And he's writing to his wife. Yeah. She was pretty upset when he died. Like, I think she took, I mean, she she knew that she absolutely had to get married again, um, but she took a little bit longer with husband number three than she took with husband number two. <laughs> <laughs> also, by this point in time, you know, she's almost 30. Like, she's just all, yeah. Yeah. And she marries Lord Stanley, who is the steward of Edward IV, puts her in that circle, um, and basically gives her access to the king, uh, which is really good. And so she spends pretty much years and years and years wheeling and dealing and ingratiating herself to the point that she convinces Edward IV to give back her son Henry's land. Which is huge. Which, again, I need to explain is sort of amazing that a woman at this point in time was able to go against the political mastermind that pretty much every historian talks about Edward IV as being, um, because he was. Like, he made real, for the most part, like, I mean, he's human, so there were a couple of things that he did that were, you're just sort of like, no, Edward, no. Um, but for the most part, he was politically brilliant, especially when it comes to his own marriage of Elizabeth Woodville, who, I, again, I am sure that we will talk about in um, definitely this podcast because she is incredible. And sort of figuring out a way to to blend the Lancastrian and the Yorkist households and really sort of build a political empire. And for much of his reign, um, in, until the point in time he pissed off Warwick, was a pretty united kingdom. I mean, there were little skirmishes hither and thither, but like for the most part, when Edward IV was in power, like it was pretty peaceful. Sure, the crown changed hands seven times in like 30 years, but whatever. That's normal, honestly. Like, you know, it's like a game of hot potato. Nobody really wants it, but everybody wants it. Just pop it around. See who it fits better. It's normal. Totally normal. Nothing weird there. Totally normal. (laughs) Unfortunately, right after, you know, he can she convinces him to give her son his lands back. Edward the Fourth very inconveniently dies yes. of tuberculosis, maybe pneumonia, lungy things. 
you know, everybody died of some sort of lungy thing. Some sort of lungy things. Um, leaving his crown to his 12-year-old son, Edward V. And here's where shit gets real, folks. Oh, my goodness. Um, so probably the most famous story of the Wars of the Roses is The Princes in the Tower. Um, and we sort of have to tiptoe around this carefully because there are two... Schools of thought. Yeah. One is the correct school of thought, and the other is not. And this is where we get into Richard III, um, who we were talking about earlier. Shakespeare vilified him. Whether or not he deserved to be vilified, I'm going to go with yes. I think it's one of those things where he should have been vilified. However, I don't think he should have been vilified to the point that he was. Like, they made him a monster, and I think he was just mm, not great. Yeah, well, and it also really sort of depends on just how much of a role he played in the murder of his nephews. Yes, that is true. And this is where things get complicated because we don't actually know who killed the princes in the tower. We don't actually know how they died either. That's a thing. Yeah. So like, it's like, you could say, oh, someone killed them. They could have also died of normal childhood diseases. Nobody really knows, but they did disappear. But also if they did die of just like sort of a normal childhood, somebody like, would have said if something. both of them died... Because it was both it was both Edward and his younger brother Richard. If they both died of normal childhood things, then why did no one know? And why weren't they brought out? Why weren't they mourned? And why wasn't it done the way that it should have been done? And why did Richard have them declared? I mean, or yeah. why did Richard have them declared illegitimate so he could ascend to the throne? Exactly. Which is all sort of leading to, you know, Richard definitely had a hand in the murder of these two young boys, you know, he took them, they were imprisoned in the tower supposedly for their own safety to get them ready for Edward V's coronation, which kept getting postponed. And then what the fuck? Richard, Richard III is now king. What, what, what? And nobody has seen the princes in forever. Uh, okay. It was probably carried out by the Duke of Buckingham. Oh, that piece of work, piece of work. He was lovely, but who definitely did not have a hand in it, no matter what certain people say about this subject, is Margaret Beaufort. She wasn't in power. She was working to get Richard III out of power. Like, it just does not make sense that Margaret... Throughout her entire, at this point in time, like 30-year campaign to get her son's lands back, never once, because of the fact that she came from an illegitimate line from the Lancastrian and the Plantagenets, never did it cross her mind that her son was going to be king until the princes vanished, until they just disappeared. Yeah. Um, she wanted to make sure he got his lands back, make sure that he was in a good position, but not, yeah, she wasn't, I don't think at the time she was, she was maneuvering to get him to be king. I think that was after there's no legitimate line yeah. i mean and that was the thing is like richard rant like because of you know there were no other nephews there were no other cousins like richard was the last of the the lancastrian plantagenets margaret basically went oh okay well shit um and here's the other thing is like this is a woman whose maternal instincts are so powerful that she basically spends her entire life just trying to make sure that her son is in a position that he can have some sort of legal... I honestly can't believe... And she knew the princes. She knew them. She knew them from her time at court. You know, Richard had never really been around them. He barely knew them. But, like, this is a woman who probably saw them, if not, if not daily, then 
several times a week because she was within the inner circles Mm -hmm. of the King's Court. She knew Elizabeth Woodville. She knew Edward IV. Like, she knew these boys. And so Margaret Beaufort had nothing to do with it. I'm saying it, calling it. There's an interesting line for those who believe that Richard III was an amazing human being and was terribly vilified and was in fact trying to save the princes and it was in it was instead Henry who wanted to be king and Margaret who got them killed it's like it there's definitely the delineation is between those who think Richard is good and those who think Richard is yeah kind of kind of a jerk right those who think he's kind of a jerk are like yeah I could see him totally like getting the boys killed and then for those who are like well no he could do no wrong he did amazing things for the people and therefore he could not have been also a bad person who killed children but here's the thing is if you if you look at the like primary sources from the time and stuff like that you know the people were not in a good place during Richard III's reign um Henry Henry was in France. He did institute some amazing things that had benefits later on. It wasn't the whole of his reign. There was a lot of his reign that like people were suffering. People were having a hard time. And while you can look at those good things as like evidence that he wasn't a complete monster, I don't think you can look at those and say, well, if those things were right and he did these good things, then none of the bad things could be wrong, be, be said about him. Because I think like all humans in history who are royalty, there is that balance of they do good and sometimes not so good. And don't worry, we're going to get into the, you know, Margaret did some pretty shitty things too. Like I am not, yes. I am not blind to the the faults of like of my hero like i am not blind to them like i i do she did a lot of really really good things she also did some pretty shitty stuff too yes um but i also think that it's important to to remind people that you know while yes the the tower that the princes were in was a palace and stuff like that not anybody could just go in there willy-nilly like you literally had to have just dispensation from the king or the ruling monarch, which at that point in time was the king, to be able to get in and out of that place. You couldn't just walk in and 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 do it. Um, and there are people who are pointing to the fact that like Margaret and Buckingham were cousins. Everybody was cousins back then. Yeah, she was married to a cousin. Like like they, everybody everybody was a cousin. And she and Richard were cousins. Yeah. And being a cousin doesn't doesn't really change anything. I think it's fascinating. Um that there is this idea that they had such easy access to the boys. Like very few people had easy access to those two kids because they were, you know, they were cloistered away for quote unquote, their own protection. Yeah. Which means not everyone had access to them. It's not like when their parents were in residency right that where they were probably out and about more they were held in small quarters they were sometimes allowed out to play but they weren't allowed to interact with a lot of people and you also have to remember at this point in time their mother was because she was so scared for her safety because richard had been killing off all of her family members like she's all off up in westminster abbey claiming sanctuary for the safety of her children and only gave up richard duke of york to because she was literally afraid that if she didn't, Richard III was going to break sanctuary and kill her and her entire family. Like, that's the only reason why she gave up the, uh, the yeah, young Which Duke. is heartbreaking because you think, okay, well, you can have them and you probably won't use kill them, but you'll use them as a bargaining tool. 
and and my I will save my family. Like that's a hard position to be in, right? Like, yeah. oh, all of my family and me die, or I give up my son who will just be incarcerated. Although you have to wonder if she didn't know oh, what she was going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think that she she was hoping against hope that it wouldn't happen. And like, this is, I mean, and this is sort of the the political climate that Margaret's like dealing in and working in at this point in time is 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 a thing where you know, as a woman, your sons are your political bargaining tools because they're the ones that have like hold power and you're brokering your future. You're brokering the future of your family by jockeying them to where they need to be in order to have the most successful life, whatever that looks like. And everyone was doing it. It's not just yeah. Margaret, right? Richard was doing his own version of jockeying, even with no kids. Um, uh, no, he, he and Anne, he, well, at this point in time, he didn't have children, but he and Anne had a son. Yeah. Um, so the princes die and, uh, Richard becomes, uh, king sort of turns into a despot is just killing people, all sorts of willy nilly. Um, and Margaret basically decides that she has had enough of this, um, and pretty much starts to, or not, doesn't start to, but she, she basically overthrows him. Um, in the only way that she knows how her son Henry is in France at this point in time. Um, and she starts basically communicating with Elizabeth Woodville through her doctor, who also is just like over the whole Richard the Third thing. He's like, yeah, no, I'm 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 not down with this. Um, to figure out how to marry Elizabeth Woodville's daughter, Elizabeth. I know the names. So much Elizabeth, so much Richard, so much Henry in this story. It's like, which Henry again? So much Edward. Yeah. <gasps> we'll do a family tree. We'll do a, you know, check our Instagram. We'll do a list of who everybody is. Um, so Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret Beaufort decide that they're going to marry Elizabeth Woodville's eldest daughter to Henry Tudor um, to solidify his claim to the throne because he doesn't have one at all, no matter what anybody mm-hmm. says. Uh, Margaret basically starts um, raising funds and an army to overthrow Richard III. It's interesting to note, though, her first attempts at rebellion does not succeed. No, Henry gets found out. He sails up to the wrong shore where Richard's army is, and they get promptly defeated, and he has to go fleeing back to France. And um, <laughs> uh... That was like a huge oops. And this again shows just how, what a, what an amazing and incredibly savvy political um, negotiator Margaret is. She doesn't get put on, she sort of gets put under house arrest. Like she's supposedly not supposed to really talk to her servants and stuff like that, but she's not killed. Like she's literally just committed treason. She's not killed. She's not imprisoned. Like her husband, who's who's Richard the Third's sort of head of house, is basically told fucking watch your wife, which he doesn't do because a couple of months later she raises a bunch more money and a bunch more like a bunch more men. Um, and while uh, Richard and his his dudes are hanging out down in Pembroke Castle in in Wales, Margaret sends her son to the north of Wales, and basically they all meet up in Bosworth field and uh henry the seventh kicks the shit out of richard the third and becomes henry the seventh and leader of and founder of the tudor dynasty yep and after that she basically tells her husband look we can stay married because you know we kind of have to um but this is no longer working for me you can have sort of these houses and lands but you know i'm mother of the queen so i'm gonna go do my own thing now i'm going to throw my money um into education I'm going to support local businesses. Um, I'm going to help build the foundations of a 
dynasty, which strangely only lasted three generations, but is still the most famous dynasty in all of um, English history, um, pretty much. Exactly. Pretty much. Pretty much. I also think this is around the time uh, when I believe, wasn't she named um, Femisol? Like, she's like one of the, that it's usually used exclusively for queens to have power, but it granted her like certain legal um, independence and social independence from men. Yeah. Like she was allowed to own her property separately from her husband and like sue in court, which normally would be denied. Well, she was also in Northamptonshire and stuff like that. Like when, especially like the lords of, of the area, needed to go to court and needed to have a magistrate. She was the one that presided over it. Like, unheard of. The only time that shit like that happens is if the king is out of the country and his queen regent is doing this shit. Yeah. Henry was in London. Elizabeth, his wife, was in London. Like, it's bananas. Absolute bananas that this is happening. Um, oh, yeah. I think that part of what makes her just so goddamn inspiring for me is not only just her absolute political wherewithal during one of the most tumultuous times in British history and stuff like that is sort of her backup plans seem to have backup plans. Like she was literally probably within the Wars of the Roses, like six steps ahead of everybody else. Or like, if not, just amazingly able to readapt her plans to match the opportunity, which is also another, like, that's also pretty strong. Like, yeah, you need to be able to see an opportunity to be able to go, oh, hey, if I do this and I do this and I do this, this is what's going to happen. But like, yeah, she's she has that ability to strategize. But also if those plans fall out, like, you know, when um, the Earl of Warwick, the Kingmaker, um, fell out of favor with Edward the Fourth and reinstated Henry the Sixth on the throne. Like being able to like be like shit. I have to like readjust to that. And then re once Henry the Sixth again got deposed by Edward the Fourth, also then sort of backtrack and 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 finagle her way back into to political power. Just her her ability to to play chess in such a politically volatile world. And and I'm not just talking about like the way that the world is politically volatile right now for for both men and women. Like women were not power players or very rarely were they power players. And they certainly were never power players the way that Margaret Beaufort was a power player. Mm -hmm. Like this is a woman who in the Wars of the Roses, out of the three main women within that, which is Anne Neville, who was married to Richard III, Elizabeth Woodville, who was married to Edward IV, and Margaret Beaufort, she is the only one that never had to go into hiding and never had to go into sanctuary. Her ability to read the room, get her shit done, and come out, and, like, her survival instincts are unreal. Some of me wonders, though, like, how much of that is from being a wife at a very young age, right? Like, and having to grow up really fast. Like, how much of that is, like, maybe trauma response? I absolutely think, well, and I mean, not even just the being a young, being um, a wife at a really young age, but I mean, think about how her life started out. She's a year old, her dad kills himself. Yeah. And the sort of turmoil and and pressure that, and her being the only child of, of the heir of the Beaufort like fortune how much pressure that put on her 
from such young age and being a cousin, like being not just a cousin to the king, but but somebody that he understood and knew was a power player and a and or not a power player, but like just how politically important and what a pawn she could be in his own political. But whatever. then she turns it around and instead of being a pawn, she in turn like she plays that field like a general, right? Like she knows what is next. She's a boss. Yeah, totally a boss. You know, and and the thing is, is like she even outlives her son to see Henry the Eighth coronation day and gets to sort of like her tenacity for lack of a better word is one of those things that is mind blowing and just her um belief in family and belief in um i don't want to use the word dynasty because i don't think that that's quite right it was loyalty it's definitely family loyalty right like she and especially to her son, right? And it, and in that case, it was reciprocated, like, very strongly. Yeah, I mean, he clearly did respect and admire um, his mother and always sort of try to do right by her. And, you know, there are a lot of people who sort of talk about, like, that that it was to the detriment of his marriage to, to Elizabeth of York, which I find really interesting because in all of my research and all of the reading that I've done about, about Margaret, and about the relationship between Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. They had an incredibly loving marriage. She really genuinely understood her role within that relationship. Like, he, she knew she was never going to be able to be the strong-willed... No, she wasn't. ...fierce woman that, that Margaret was. So she understood her place and took a softer, I don't want to say docile because she wasn't, but she also understood that she was never going to be able to usurp the most important woman role in Henry's life. And almost everybody who were primary sources at the time talk about the respect that Margaret and Elizabeth of York had for one another and the cordial relationship that they had with one another and that if there were any breaks in that foundation or any discord within that relationship, they never let it show publicly. No, and I don't think it was ever written about even in private letters. Like, there's no extant letters of Elizabeth going, mm, Margaret's not so great. My mother-in-law's a real bitch. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, Margaret going, fuck, dude, I picked the wrong girl for my fucking son. She's an absolute milk toast. I hate her. That said... She did not treat Elizabeth Woodville well. No. And and I think that this is one of the, the main problems that I sort of have with Margaret's politicking and um, self-preservation is because Elizabeth Woodville had been an incredibly popular queen. She was, she was the first commoner queen of England mm-hmm. and she was very popular and the people loved her. And so pretty much as soon as Henry became king, Margaret shuffled Woodville off into retirement. And I think that she, I think that that could have been handled better. I think that that's sort of where you see Margaret's one um, moment of self-consciousness. And it's like, she's that commoner queen. So obviously she doesn't have any, she doesn't have any right to be here anymore now that she is no longer. Yeah. I mean, she's still a queen, but like, it's, it feels very, like, oh, you're not one of us, so you need to go away. Yeah, I mean, because Margaret was very much of like, I am the, I am the descendant of Edward the Third. I am the descendant of John of Gaunt. I am, I am, I am, and definitely mm-hmm. had, even though she wasn't queen herself, definitely, definitely had a be- 
you know, a strong sense of her own majesty, strong sense of her own wherewithal, a strong sense of her own royal bloodline that, you know, this sort of lower gentried woman who whilst was a descendant of, you know, the House of Luxembourg, it was so long ago that it doesn't even like in Margaret's like realm it doesn't even blip she's just like whatever commoner and you know she she also she also did some things like pass the debt of dead people onto their widows and yeah did some she did some shitty things yeah she did some shitty things she did and i think that that's also sort of what makes I don't want to say me respect her because I don't respect her for either of those things. I'm like, oh, Margaret, no, that that's not a good look, babe. Um, not that I would ever call Margaret Beaufort babe because all four foot 11 of her would probably kick my ass to France. <laughs> but I think that it's one of those things that makes her human. Like it's, it's sort of because without those sort of flaws and, and things, she would almost be too good to be true. And so through these these fatal flaws that she has and and um this almost rigidity in in her viewpoint and her thinking and her her mm-hmm. her elitism it makes her it makes her more palatable like i'm just like oh god you had something wrong with you thank christ because if you didn't yeah i mean she's not a paragon of perfection although if we look at paragons of perfection like dolly parton right like it doesn't, it's not like you don't look at Dolly Parton and be like, oh, thank God for flaws. Right. Right. But I also don't think that, you know, I think that comparing Dolly Parton and comparing Margaret is probably not a fair comparison. (laughs) Not at all. I mean, I get it. They're both tiny. They're both really into reading and, 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 you know, really powerful in their own ways. I mean, yeah. And, and overthrowing and quietly, well, not that Margaret did it quietly, but Dolly Parton sort of, you know, help, you know, engaging in things for the betterment of humanity, Mm -hmm. all of that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Totally. Um, I don't think that Margaret Beaufort probably has the se- had the sense of humor that Dolly Parton did. And I honestly don't think that she um, would have been able to tease herself and laugh at herself the way that Dolly Parton did. No, she felt her majesty way too seriously. Yeah, well, and I mean, because, you know, Dolly Parton will admit that, she, you know, she sort of came from... Oh, she came from nothing. She came from nothing. and And the woman that she admired most in her town was you know, a sex worker. And she thought she was the fanciest woman. Yeah, Dolly Parton has literally said, yeah, my mama said that, you know, I saw this beautiful woman who was super glamorous. And my mama said that that woman was trash. And so I knew when I grew up, I wanted to be trash. Like these are, this is absolute quotes from, she's so adorable that Margaret Beaufort would never have said that. No, never. And I think a lot of that shows though, like her fatal flaws come from that point of she was born into a royal family yes and it definitely a an illegitimate line but she also came into a family with money like a lot of money so much money that the crown was like hey we 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 need that so can we marry you in over here to be close so like it's one of those things when you are born to know that you're more important than other people it's a lot easier to look at you know, other families and be like, oh yeah, your widow's going to take care of that. Oh yeah. You know what? You're, we're going to just put you into retirement because you're not real royalty. At the same time, you know, I mean, and, and these are all incredibly horrible things that, that Margaret did. You know, if you look at her, you know, expenditures, 
you know, during her quote unquote retirement and stuff like that, she was definitely into stimulating the economy. Mm-hmm. Like she did a lot for the British economy at that point in time. Not that it was British, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, she she employed local jewelry yeah. people. She employed local um tailors and and clothes makers she employed the local wine merchant she was a real fan of white wine i'm like oh british people loved white wine even back then huh oh interesting (laughs) (laughs) um you know and she had huge estates that she took care of and she gave her husband like not that stanley needed it but like she gave her husband an allowance like she just did some really zany like completely bonker shit like for a woman at that point in time like you know she just did bonker shit like i'm gonna give my husband an allowance like she just absolutely amazing and you know the fact that she basically understood that she did not need a man at a point in time when women had no legal or political power without a husband like i they had no no control of their finances, nothing. Yeah. You're either under the power of your father or either you're under the power of your husband or you're under the power of the church. Yeah. Like, there is there's a, never a point where you are under your own power. And like she's that she's like one of the first in that line to have that kind of power. And then you see that like as you look at Henry's kids, Henry VIII's kids. I think that Elizabeth definitely sort of was taking a page from the Margaret Beaufort playbook when she decided she was never going to get married. She's like, I refuse to be under the thumb of a man, even though she never met. I'm sure that, you know, not that I'm sure she never met her. I know she didn't meet her, but like, I'm sure that she heard stories about her. I'm sure that she knew about, about this incredible woman that she came from who absolutely believed in her own agency and her own autonomy and her own self of sense of self. And even in some ways, like seeing Elizabeth's religious reforms, when you understand just how sort of devout Mm -hmm. and entrusting of God that Margaret was, it's sort of interesting to see the political religious dynamics that play out through the rest of the Tudor dynasty, which is just crazy. Yeah. So, but for her though, it's like, that's one of the things they talked to about her. They're like, she was extremely pious and extremely loyal to her family. Like those are her defining in a lot of ways. Those are a lot of the things that people remark on. Like she was super pious and she did a lot of work to, you know, make sure that everyone in the royal family was educated to a certain level. And so there's the family part. And then, yeah, all of the religious reforms that she proposed. Yeah. And I think even in her tomb. In the Lady's Chapel? Yeah. She's in prayer again, right? Like there's like, that was super important to her. Uh, Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And she's, you know, she helped start Queens College at Oxford, you know. And so like we see even, you know, what, like six, seven hundred years on the role that this woman played in the foundation of the educational system in England, in Britain and England still being played out. And so it's like, for me, it's really weird that, I mean, I, I understand that she's, she's getting a little more of a Renaissance. (laughs) We saw what I did there. God, I'm fucking lame. (laughs) Um, We see a resurgence of, of her popularity or interest in her. But I think that it it really does sort of speak about just how forgotten she was for so long, like within the popular sphere. I'm, I mean, I understand that within like medieval and 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 Renaissance scholars, especially British Renaissance scholars and stuff like that, that she was very. Um, she's always sort of been 
you know, a player. But for somebody who, you know, has studied Renaissance history and comes from a family who is very into that sort of history and historical point in time, that I didn't learn about this woman until I was in my mid-30s is really sort of fascinating. And so I think that you've got Dan Jones talking about her in, in The Hollow Crown. You've got um, Sarah, uh, what's her name? Um, Sarah Griswold, who does um, the, 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 you know, the Blood Sisters, the Women of the Wars of the Roses. You know, there was a, a book published last year called um, Queen Without a Crown, which literally is about Margaret Beaufort and, and her amazing role in um, basically the creation of, of England as it is known today, which, I mean, many scholars feel was pretty solidified, or at least the foundation was really laid within um, the Wars of the Roses, because it pretty much meant that anybody who had a drop of royal blood could claim the crown. Um, but then also, you know, because of Henry and 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 Elizabeth and the Henrys and Elizabeth and some of the, the tax stuff and the Church of England and all of that sort of stuff, like, yeah. that is still being carried out today. I mean, all of that really starts with Without Margaret. her, we'd have a Richard future whatever that future looked like, like would England have survived a full reign of Richard? And what would that have looked like? Yeah. I mean, it is literally one of those points that like, there are certain points in time in history that you're like, if this had gone a, a different way, what would the world look like? Yeah. What would it look like? I think, um, so one of the things that I love about Margaret is that her plans had plans. And then when things changed, she was able to pivot quickly. And I think that is like a really important lesson, especially now in this day and age with things moving so quickly and with so many things that need to get done. Like for me, it's looking at it like, okay, so how do I incorporate some of these things into my own like how do i have plans within plans within plans and i'm also flexible enough that if something changes i can maximize the benefit from those changes and then of course like how do i not alienate certain people while doing so while still also absolutely having your end goal in sight it's not just the pivoting it's the knowing where you want to end up yeah and making sure that you figure out a way how to get there. Just, and, and if there is a roadblock or if there is something that happens, figuring out a way around, up, over, under Negotiate it. for yourself, right? Like that's a, that's a really hard thing too. Like she went and negotiated a marriage. She negotiated so many things. Um, and that right there is she had agency at a time where agency wasn't in, like, wasn't in, wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of it for women. No. So like being able to use what agency you have to your best benefit is another lesson I think that she teaches us. And also how to navigate a field that you may not necessarily, I don't want to say the word belong in, but will not be accepted in and do it and do it well. Mm -hmm. Like she's just like unbelievable. And like, I've spent a lot of time this week sort of thinking about women in our modern world who kind of embody that pivot step turn that, that Margaret Beaufort did for the betterment of whatever. Um, and I kept coming back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Who also like amazing kept, has a, has an end goal in, in mind, working towards that end goal, but also has some really problematic areas around some of the rulings that she has. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really good, I think that's a really good uh, parallel. But also sort of the very understanding of some 
you know, questioning whether or not the ends justify the means. And in some cases, yes, they do. Absolutely, they do. And in other cases, not so much. But also figuring out ways to work with the other side and surrounding yourself with especially men, because as much as we don't want to admit it, like that can still be very beneficial at time, who absolutely believe in your own intelligence and agency. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, her husband, Marty. Yeah. Having, having someone in your corner, someone who is a part of that larger power structure right. who has your back is super important. But also, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's own devotion to her faith and Margaret's devotion to her faith. I think that there are a lot of really interesting parallels there and a lot of a lot of similarities of the good and the bad. And I think that it's also, you know, with both of these women, I think it's really sort of important to figure out how much of that you want to take with you and admire and how much of that is really going to sort of, I don't want to say tarnish. I don't know about tarnish, but I think it informs. Like if it can inform, you're like, hey, they did all of these good things, but they also did these bad things. So I need to look at those things that aren't so great and make sure that I try to avoid that pitfall. I don't do the same thing. I'm going to learn from their mistakes, right? Instead of saying we can lionize them in the things that we could lionize them for. And we can say, and here are the things that I don't feel they did right and I want to fix. And this is how I can do it by voting down ticket, by um, championing causes, by supporting bills that fix certain um, inequities, by, you know, making sure that judges who are going to have the best in mind for everyone and not just certain people are in the courts. Like that's what you want. You want someone who's looking out for everybody. And it's hard because like everyone has their blind spots and you, it's a good example of like, Hey, if you have your blind spot, you have one, try and find it. Absolutely. And I think it's also, I think it's also important to really, when you see these people in power, because like, obviously, you know, for especially feminist icons and stuff like that, we really want to sort of idealize them and, 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 and St. Mary them and, and, and Madonna them, not like Madonna as in, <laughs> you know, like Virgin Madonna, but like Madonna is and like the mother of Christ Madonna. We want to Madonnaize them and, and, and not look at their flaws and not look at their faults. And, um, I think that it's important to remember that these women were human and that we can, we can take inspiration from the really, truly amazing things that they did and use the things that they did that were not so amazing to examine our own flaws and, and blind spots and, and mm-hmm. um, areas in which we need to work on ourselves and use those as sort of an example of how to move better, yes. how to move forward better, and how to how to embrace change in a positive way that may go against our own prejudices. Maybe really uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Like some of these things, it's like you have to think in a different way in order to think about other people. And I think that's that is two of the places Ruth had a blind spot about certain types of people. And so did Elizabeth. Not Elizabeth, sorry. Blech. There's so many Elizabeths. So did Margaret. Do, do, do. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, like, looking at it, it's like, yeah, we all have them. Yeah. And here they are. They're totally up for show. You can see exactly where these blind spots are in someone else. So, like, how do you then, like, do the good, like Margaret and like Ruth, but also who do you go to and how do you have someone who's going to point out, like, 
those flaws? And do you have a plan to find your own? Do you have someone who will call you on your stuff? Do you have like, how are you going to try and mitigate the harm that you can do by not dealing with those blind spots? Absolutely. I think that when it really boils down to it and we're in the middle of, of incredible political turmoil and plans are going all sorts of willy nilly and things don't look like they're going to, there is the potential that things may not work out the way that, that we would all like them to work out. Um, we need to sort of sit there and ask ourselves, what would Margaret Beaufort do in this situation? In this situation, Margaret Beaufort would have an objective in mind, mm-hmm. have a plan for that objective, have alternate plans for that objective, and be ready to roll if anything changes. Yeah, and then alternate plans for those alternate plans. Like She's like, she'd be like, well, children, please, I have a plan A, B, C, all the way up through Z. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And in fact, then we start going into hexadecimals and it just gets crazy from there. (laughs) Each plan has sub plans. Yeah. For me, a lot of it comes down to you need to know what your objective is. What is the thing that you want to do? And then you make your plans. And no, not everybody is good at the far reaching plans. So maybe you have to break your plans into smaller bits and move towards the little bits. That's totally okay. Sometimes, you know, your plan is to get out of bed in the morning. And that can be as huge of a challenge as getting a king on the throne. Like, believe us, Ooh. like we know, like sometimes just getting out of bed and doing the things that you need to do oh, looks God. just as hard as trying to get your son uh, to be a king. Your plans don't have to be as dramatic as either Ruth's or Margaret's. They don't. But like knowing like, hey, on those days when things are hard, knowing what your objective is, knowing what you're working towards, and then being able to build plans to support that. Like that's going to help you in your life just get to where you want to be. And I mean, that is affected by socioeconomic things. It's affected by government things and sickness things. And like things are going to throw a wrench in, but doing some thinking about like flexibility of thought and working on like, okay, if X happens, what could I do? If Y happens, what could I do? If this happens, what could I do? And then there's still going to be things that blindside you. But because you have all this experience about thinking about plans, it becomes a lot easier to make said plans, I think. Yeah. But it's it's time to talk about the badass woman we know in our own lives. Yay! You go first this time. Mine is actually my dad's sister, my Aunt Patricia, who, like Margaret Beaufort, is very, she's a very faithful woman. It's one of the things. She's my godmother. But she's also incredibly kind and very funny and doesn't ever try to push her beliefs or, or religion on other people and is very accepting of that not everybody subscribes to, to the Catholic dogma. And as I live in Poland, I think that that's very important for me to remember that there are people like this in the world who hold their faith fast to their hearts, but also understand that their faith is not for everyone. And she also likes every time I post a Rickroll like thing on Facebook. So like, <laughs> like, so she just, she also just sort of reminds me to be kind. Every time I talk to her, every time I email her, um, she's just one of those, those people who reminds you to be a little bit kinder be a little bit softer, be a little bit better. Um, yeah, it's my Aunt Patricia. She's kind of dope. Yay. Yay. All right, Kendra, who's your badass woman of the day or the week? My badass woman of the week is my friend Megan. 
my friend Megan is, um, she works in the museum space doing a lot of like exhibit creation and experience creation. And she project manages a lot of that and works with a lot of vendors to have like certain visions created. And I think like what I love about Megan is she gets all this done. She's an amazing human. She also like fights really, really hard to find those blind spots in herself and like really, really like investigate them and work to like root out some of these things that are so ingrained in how we react as people. And like she works to raise awareness of like all kinds of like racism, sexism, disability, um, discrimination. And like that is for me, like I look at that as someone who has a lot of those qualities of Margaret Beaufort, that ability to plan, that ability to pivot when plans don't go right, that ability to work in what is usually a man's environment, um, in that being like museum space in general, but definitely in the exhibition space, being able to work there successfully and to make amazing things happen but also to recognize that she has blind spots and to work on those blind spots to make what she does better for everyone and not just for certain people. And I think that's why Megan is my um, my badass woman of the week. Yay, Megan! Yay. That's also my niece's name. <laughs> um, she also is an amazing little creature. Anyway, neither here nor there. Um, Forrest can edit that out. Forrest can do anything. <laughs> Um, okay, so we'll see you guys next week. Have a great week, guys. See you next week. Bye. Badass Women of History. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.